glad you got to that song. It was worth waiting for. We don't have to turn to any particular place today, but you might want to note some of the verses I refer to today. I appreciate all the preparation that goes into the songs that you do, Victoria. I know how much goes into it. And the prayer today, also I thanked Pastor Brown for the preparation that went into it, the thought that went into it, the thoughtfulness. And it's a pleasure to collaborate, collabor with you, both of you and with all of you here today. We're a team. And Mark, the perfect man, did a good job there too. And... Today I want to speak on the doctrine of justification, Romans doctrines, for the ninth time. Now, if I was a seasonal pastor, pastors have calendars and they say, oh, I'll preach this time on this. At the end of the summer, sometimes pastors always pull out that Jeremiah 8.20, I think it is. The summer is ended and we are not saved. probably misinterpreting what Jeremiah... I'm not going to preach on that today. Today I'm going to speak on Paul and the parables. Paul and the parables, the doctrine of justification, part nine. What the Holy Spirit has been doing, and I was just meditating on this during the prayer and the song, is the living spirit oscillates in our messages between the center of our redemption, Christ and him crucified, And the universal horizon of that redemption, which is all of creation, all of its times, all of humanity and all of its seasons and sequences, all of history redeemed. That's the horizon. Today, we'll take a major step, I think, for us at least, for a phalanx, in solidifying the place of Paul's doctrine of justification in the New Testament, solidifying its place. In the segment of doctrine of justification, in this particular segment, I want to address a problematic. Uh, Problematic is simply something that poses a difficulty that may arise in the mind of a person who is acquainted with the New Testament scriptures, and that's most of you. In fact, it's quite a few people in our country and in the world today generally acquainted with the New Testament scriptures. In fact, this problematic is likely to arise in the hearts and minds of many who have read the Gospels, the four Gospels, especially those three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that are called the synoptic Gospels. And in fact, in conversations with friends and with those who may disagree with our universal perspective, This has arisen, and it is a problematic. How can Paul's doctrine of justification find agreement with certain texts which Jesus speaks of judgment, clearly of condemnatory judgment, and even of eternal punishment and fire, as it appears in the English text? Paul's doctrine of justification When it's unscrambled, and that's what we had to do. We really had to unscramble it from the doctrines that were competing with him, even within Romans. And that's part of the interpretation of Romans. Paul's doctrine of justification, when it's unscrambled from other competing doctrines, which Paul blatantly says to stay away from in Romans 16.20, 
Paul's doctrine is an explicit demonstration. By explicit, I mean obvious demonstration of universal divine mercy. We paid the dues of doing an exegesis and a verse-by-verse study of Romans to reveal that and to show that and disclose that. It is an explicit demonstration of the justification of life to all of humanity, of the astounding grace of God by which he justifies the ungodly and the unrestricted, unparalleled, surprising love of God by which he reconciled his enemies through the death of his son who died for the ungodly and justified us all by his blood. How does this clear-eyed and coherent salvific universalism of Paul find detente? That was a big word in Vietnam. Detente, agreement. How does it find agreement or detente? With the parables of Jesus in which there are verbal pictorials, dramatic verbal pictures of the Son of Man, for example, who sits on his glorious throne, separating the sheep from the goats, a separation that results in the goats being called accursed and sent into Aeonios fire, everlasting fire, or fire from another world is probably better. How do we reconcile that? How is Paul's explicit, and I mean it is explicit, salvific universalism? How is it not in contradiction to the vision that Jesus puts forth in that parable? In Matthew 25, 31 to 46. We've looked at it from one or two angles, but today from a more profound angle. How does Paul's gospel find harmony with the parables recorded in the synoptic gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke? And this, what I'm introducing today, deserves a far wider, broader, and deeper treatment. Maybe we'll do that sometime, or you will. How does it reconcile or find harmony, Paul's gospel, with the parables recorded in the synoptic gospels in which evil servants or slaves are handed off to torturers and to prison, in which a man without proper attire is tied up and thrown out of a wedding celebration and into outer darkness? Or in which a nobleman has his enemies slaughtered in his presence. How does that gel with Paul? Well, let's begin by considering two sayings of Jesus. I want to begin this. This is my own treatment of it. Although I received a nudge in this direction from an Austrian theologian named Raymond. That's M-U-N-D. Raymond Schwager. S-C-H-W-A-G-E-R. And I want to give credit where that's due. He's the one that nudged me in this direction. But the nudge knocked the wind out of me, so it's a strong nudge. But I began with Matthew 23, 23, in combination with Luke eleven forty two. 42. 
In both of these verses, Jesus is denouncing the scribes and the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, 23, he reprimands them for neglecting what he called the weightier, we would call it the more significant matters of the Torah, overlooking them, disregarding them. They'll reveal that shortly by disregarding Jesus Christ, who is the whole message of the Torah. Those weightier matters are namely justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Matthew 23, 23. All of these are qualities of God that men are ultimately to imitate by a graced imitation. That's divine imitation. We will see this in doing and living theology. In Luke eleven forty two, the significant matters of the law that they neglected were the justice and the love of God. You pass over these, he says, while you pay minuscule attention to your tithing of mint and rue and herbs. Now, while we Christians are glad to heap on our own censure of the Pharisees, we love to do that. We love to read Matthew 23 with feeling. Pastors, preachers love that especially. But while we're glad to heap our own censure of the Pharisees, my question is, are we not in danger of interpreting the parables of Jesus while neglecting these same weighty matters? The justice and the love of God, mercy and faithfulness. Did Jesus neglect these in his own telling of the parables? Paul, the ex-Pharisee, in Philippians 3.5, he says that he was an ex-Pharisee. Paul not only did not neglect justice, mercy, faithfulness, and the love of God, these are the weighty matters of Romans. Only justice is mentioned in specifically in both of these passages. Matthew 23, justice is grouped with mercy and faithfulness. In Luke eleven forty two, it's the twin of the love of God. So how did Paul emphasize the justice of God in his doctrine of justification if, in fact, justice has to do with judgment? And it does. Krisen, K-R-I-S-N in the Greek. Well, the answer is that Paul expounded just as Jesus personified the highest form of justice, which was manifested in the crucified one on the cross. This is the highest form of justice and of judgment. It's called the law of the cross, whereby God turns evil to good and even transforms the evil into the supreme good. This justice is in accord with God's love. That's why the justice and the love of God are in tandem, inseparable tandem. Justice and judgment is an act that proceeds from God's love. The justice that Jesus and that Paul speak of is not the justice that is meted out by a judge who delivers a debtor to the torturers. 
and to prison until the debtor pays back in suffering every cent that was owed. We say, you'll pay through the nose. If you can't pay with money, you'll pay through being beaten over and over again. That's the sense of justice that some people have. No, the justice that Paul speaks of and that Jesus personified in his person is a justice wherein the judge willingly becomes the judged. We can't even imagine a trial by jury in which a prosecutor is there trying to prosecute a criminal and a defender is trying to defend him. We can't imagine that maybe that case hits a stalemate and the judge takes off his robe and steps in and takes the judgment and receives the execution. But that's the justice of God. You can't unravel it from the love of God. God's justice is mentioned with mercy because God's justice is his mercy. God's mercy is his justice. This is how Jesus mentions justice with mercy and mercy with faithfulness. God's justice acted through Jesus' faithfulness and obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion so that God could have mercy on all, including the most egregious offenders, including those who insisted on the murder of God's own son. In Luke, Jesus places the justice and the love of God in tandem. They're together. And as I look at it in the Greek text right in front of me here, it's, it's astounding. They're joined by the conjunction chi, K-A-I, in the Greek text. So it reads, ten krisen chi, ten agapen. The justice and the love of God. Now the Bible teachers, oh, this brings us home today. And the separated religious types, the Pharisees, the Pashtun, the separated ones. And the Bible teachers, religious types of Jesus' time, skipped right over the significant matters of the Torah, got right to the matter of tithing in its most minuscule details. We who boldly call ourselves Christians and who are zealous to heap condemnation on those scribes and Pharisees are in danger of a Pharisaical reading of the judgment texts in Jesus' parables. In fact, we may already have interpreted them or accepted an interpretation of them from Bible teachers and separated ones without considering the significant matters of the unparalleled love of God, the highest form of justice expressed in the just and mysterious law of the cross, the universal mercy of God, we know that from Romans 11.32 and up building up to it, and God's great faithfulness revealed in Christ, all of which are the prominent themes of Romans and of Paul's doctrine of justification. In fact, Jesus' parables, in an even more effective, dramatic, and narrative way, 
reveal the astounding justice and the astonishing love of God, which justifies the ungodly by dying for them, loves God's enemies by reconciling them, and shows mercy to all of the human race in all of its times in Christ and in him crucified. Here we're at the universal horizon and the radical center from which that horizon emanates, Christ and him crucified. I'm the dumbest man alive. That's all I know. Christ and him crucified. I'm the dumbest Bible preacher there is. It's all I know. Christ and him crucified. When I see the parables, when I read the scriptures, when I read the condemning judgment texts, Jesus dramatically depicts in his parables. Again, at this point in our doctrine of justification, I'm asking the question, is Paul's explicit doctrine of universal justification, and there's nothing more explicit, is it contradicted by the parables of Jesus, which include the idea of the judgment of evildoers, the separation of evildoers from doers of good in the last judgment, a notion that is blatantly obvious if we read Matthew 25, 31 to 46. A question that may go a long way and go along with this question has to do, as Schwager did it, and I'm doing it my own way, the book of Jonah, the Jonophile, as I would call it. Is there a contradiction between Jonah's message, which is simply this, in 40 days... Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all he preached. Jonah 3, 4. So is there a contradiction between that message and the actual fate of all the Ninevites, which was that they were all spared, all of them including the king and all of his subjects and all the animals? Jonah 3, 10. Jonah 4, 11. How do you square that? The answer is no, it does, there's no contradiction. Something unanticipated, even by the prophet, who was annoyed at God's mercy, incidentally. People get annoyed at God's mercy. Angry at his generosity. There's going to be people angry at my interpretation of the parables today, which I agree with Schwagger on, but I've taken it a further, a little bit further. I've got my own Schwagger. Something intervened, unanticipated by the prophet. God intervened. And that intervention was the repentance of the entire population of the city. Now you say, what, how did that happen? Well, Acts eleven eighteen helps us when Paul comes back and gives his testimony. The Jewish leaders are pretty excited. Peter actually gives the testimony of what happened at Cornelius' house. And the Jewish leaders were astounded. They said, it looks like God granted repentance to the Gentiles. That's what happened. Forty days later, Nineveh would have been overthrown, but something intervened. God granted repentance to the whole of the Ninevites, including their pets and their animals. A clearly, a repentance 
granted by God as shown in Acts 11:18, illustrated in Romans 2:4, 2 Timothy 2:26, God grants repentance. And he did to all of Nineveh. And why did he do that to all of Nineveh? Because God himself anticipated a great future event, which is the judgment of Jesus Christ on the cross, who in that event was made sin for us, and that includes the Ninevites in the 8th century B.C., and made a curse for us. Galatians 3, 13, 2 Corinthians 5:21. And so I would say that the Jonah file, we call it the book of Jonah. It's not really a book. It's more like a file on Jonah's missionary exploit to the Gentiles. The Jonah file serves as a small model of universal salvation by the granting of repentance to all in the intervening Christ event. So I'm indebted once again, Raymond Schwager, in his book entitled Jesus in the Drama of Salvation, for an extraordinary interpretation of those parables of Jesus in which condemning judgment is a salient theme. It juts out. You can't help see it. And in which there is an interpretation that is not a matter of a line between two groups of people, like in the sheep and the goats. The line isn't dividing two groups of people. The line runs through us all. We all have in us a sheep and a goat. The division that happened in the judgment of the cross was the old man was severed from the new person. That's not where I'm entirely going today, although that's a hint of things that could be developed in a magnificent way. We find from the interpretation that it's not a matter of a line between two groups of people, but a line that runs through all people who are capable of moral actions and of sinful actions and who are not justified or condemned by either of those. What is revealed in this extraordinary interpretation is a principle which I have nucleated over and over again. And so this is what my take on it is. It's a hermeneutical principle or a principle of interpretation that was radically and exclusively deployed by the Apostle Paul. Namely, his determination to know nothing among his readers and audience but Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the interpretive key. The interpretive key. This is the key to the house of knowledge. Jesus said to the Pharisees in 1152, you kept the key for yourself. You don't enter in yourself and you don't let anyone else enter in. The interpretive key is the crucified Christ. And when we say crucified, we mean crucified Dead, buried, risen, ascended, exalted, glorified. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the interpretive key to all the scriptures, and that includes the parables which involve the condemnatory judgment of evildoers. 
lazy servants, slothful slaves, evil slaves, people in debt, evil debtors. In Jesus Christ and him crucified, the justice and the love of God, the faithfulness and the universal mercy of God all come together. In the light of Jesus Christ and him crucified, buried, resurrected, elevated, and glorified, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, just as Paul appeared before his audience in Corinth. Speaking of Christ and him crucified, Paul said, I appeared before you in fear and trembling. What kind of fear? Awesome reverence. Trembling all over at the extent of this revelation of mercy and grace and love. The same fear and trembling, he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling means experience your part in this great redemption with the same fear and trembling I have. And Philippians 2, 12 and 13 comes right off the heels of him exalted, every knee bowing, every tongue acknowledging Jesus to be Lord, the one who gave himself over in obedience even to the de- death, and God highly exalted him, gave him a name, universal redemption. Then Paul says, now, in the light of that, fear and tremble. Experience your part of that great redemption by the Holy Spirit because it's God in you. It's God in you, willing and working. God in me willing makes me reverentially fear. God in me doing makes me tremble. It makes me fear trying to do stuff myself, in fact, and call it Christianity when it's just the energy of the flesh. Paul said, I came before you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. This weakness and fear and trembling occurs in the light of Jesus Christ and him crucified, and that being the only reason for the salvation of the human race, a salvation that is subjectively realized in those who are awakened to the stunning and astonishing truth of the gospel of God about his son. Now, I'm not sure I come down exactly as Schwager does on everything in his book, but I was profoundly struck by his observations, both in Jonah and the parables of Jesus, in which there are clear references to condemning judgment and even to a last judgment in which sheep are separated from goats with the goats being consigned by the son of man to eternal fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Does this contradict Paul's explicit universalism and his declaration that Jesus was handed over for our offenses and raised up for our justification, that is for the justification of life, to all of humanity in all of its times in Romans 4.25 and 5.18? Or are these parables, in fact, in agreement with Paul's vision? In fact, uh, they are the vision of all the prophets of the Old Testament, the prophets of God from time immemorial of a universal restoration. How can they agree with that? 
Do Jesus' parables contradict the vision of the prophets of a universal restoration called apocatastasis? Do Jesus' parables involving these judgment texts, condemnatory judgment texts, contradict Paul's clear-eyed universal salvation, justification of all? That's a problematic Problematic is an adjective, but it's also a noun. It means a problem that presents a real difficulty to people. It, I'm taking away. There's no difficulty after today. There's no difficulty anyways. I'm just taking it away for you. Schwager observes that the one, please notice, and I emphasize the one, the one person, who was cast out of the royal wedding ceremony, for example, in that parable in Matthew twenty-two thirteen. I wish I could go through all these. This is just touching the surface. The one who was cast out of the royal wedding ceremony denotes the casting out of Jesus by the representatives of both Israel and Rome, the Gentiles. He was cast into outer darkness, Matthew twenty-two thirteen. To me, what was striking is that one man was bound, beaten, and thrown into outer darkness. One man. Daniel 9.26 prophesies of the Messiah that, quote, he will be cut off and have nothing. The same image of one man being cast into outer darkness in another parable of Jesus. This time, a good-for-nothing slave. It's interesting that Jesus took the form of a slave in Philippians 2.8 and became obedient to the Father's saving will of all things. The Father's universally. Do you realize there was one moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus could have saved himself and himself alone and justly let the human race slide. And he chose the father's will to save all, which was his own will to save all. He became obedient. I'm dropping these as hints because I know you as an audience. You can take a hint. Most of you can take a hint. You're already going places with this. You're already, you've already flown over the Bahamas, and you're halfway to Rio de Janeiro. But some of you are waiting, and that's good too. I agree with the observation that the one who was cast out of the royal wedding ceremony denotes the casting out of Jesus by the representatives of Israel and Rome into outer darkness. To me, it's striking that only one man is cast out. And again, in Matthew 25, 30, just before the parable of the goats and the sheep and the Son of Man seated upon his glorious throne. There's Matthew 25, 30 that summarizes the parable of the talents in which a good-for-nothing slave is cast into outer darkness. Jesus was cut off entirely from society and life itself. Jesus was thrown out. 
Jesus was without a garment. Jesus was beaten. Jesus was bound. Jesus was thrown into outer darkness. You know why? On the cross, darkness enveloped the crucified Jesus. Nobody else. Jesus Christ was in outer darkness for three hours. Matthew twenty-seven forty-five. Jesus on the cross, having been to the torturers. What do you do to that guy that has that debt that won't pay it? He throw him to the torturers, the jailers who beat the daylights out of him. And do so until they consider that he's paid the debt in full, the last farthing, the last bit, the last cent. Jesus on the cross had been to the torturers. He was bound and beaten, hung without a garment on the cross, utterly enveloped by outer darkness. Who is he talking about in those parables? That is the justice of God in which the judge, and the judge is the son of man. Jesus said the father has entrusted all judgment to me because I am the son of man. John five twenty seven. He steps in. The one who is entrusted with all judgment steps in. And receives the judgment. That's the love of God in which the judge does this for his enemies. For those whom we would consider deserving of the same faith. That's what annoys us so much. They deserve it. Do you know what the Ninevites did? Well, did you know what Pilate did? Do you know what the Jews who voted on Jesus' crucifixion did? Do you know that it was Jesus who said, Father, forgive them? Think of a worse crime than the murder of the only son of God. Think of it. If you really got your ducks in a row, you can't think of a worse one. What kind of a stunning forgiveness is this? What kind of love is this? What kind of love? Because the Son of Man, as the one who passes judgment, received the condemnatory judgment himself, then those who have done evil will rise to a judgment of acquittal. 528 of John. And those that have done, who will have done good, will arise to a judgment of life. There's only one problem, another problematic. All of humanity have done evil. Romans 323. Romans 3.10, 3.12, 5.12. And there are none who have done good. 
Romans 3.10-12. Consequently, all receive the justification of life from the judge who received their condemnation. The throne of glory upon which the Son of Man sits in the last judgment in the picture of the sheep and the goats is the cross upon which the Son of Man sat. The throne of glory upon which the Son of Man sits in the last judgment is the cross where the last judgment occurred. The last judgment is the past judgment of Christ on the cross. You say, that's too good. No, it isn't. It's exactly as good as it's supposed to be. That's the gospel. And you know, there you'll actually find Christians, well, they boldly call themselves Christians, who are very angry at what I just told you. I mean, they really can't handle deserves got nothing to do with it. They really, really, really cannot handle that. Sheep and goats are not two groups in humanity. The line runs through us all. In all of humanity, there's a sheep and a goat. The line runs through us all. There isn't the oppressed and the oppressor. In the oppressed, there's bound up an oppressor that can't wait to get out and oppress the hell out of his oppressors. The parable of the unforgiving slave ends with the master handing over a slave to the jailers who would torture him until he paid back everything he owed. Matthew 18.34. This reminds, I can't help laughing at this when we took our grandsons. Pam and I took Cole and Adrian to Jonah. Many of you saw Jonah. And there was a group of church people behind us. And they were rooting the whole time. It's coming. Judgment's coming. It's coming. Oh, they were so happy, the Ninevites. And then at the end, they were as mad as Jonah under that gourd. Because they actually ran out of steam. They, they had nothing left. They were like silent. I almost wanted to turn around and say, what do you, where's all your hallelujahs now? They must not have read the end of the book. And they expressed the same annoyance as Jonah. And in the play, they had someone come up to Jonah and say, are you, why are you so upset? Are you angry at my compassion on all of these Ninevites who don't even know they're right from their left? How could they choose right from wrong? They don't even know they're right from the left, and I've saved all their animals too. What, what, how can you be angry at my mercy? And then he removes the robe, and of course it's Jesus, Yahweh. Stunning, stunning. But what always, I always thought about that. All of a sudden, all the religious zeal is gone because that zeal to have somebody that deserves it get damned, damn it. It's gone. You're deflated. If they knew what was really there, they'd start to tremble just a little bit. People, you know who should tremble? All of us should. But you know who should really tremble is Bible teachers 
who interpret Jesus' parables as an accurate depiction of God's justice. When they are only that, if Jesus Christ and him crucified is at the heart. An unforgiving slave handed over to torture until he pays back everything he owed. Matthew 18.34. Jesus was handed over to the Roman soldiers and was tortured, beaten, scourged. A crown of thorns pressed cruelly on his head before his crucifixion. On the cross in his death, he paid all right. Through suffering, he paid the ransom price for the release of all of humanity from their slavery to sin. In the parable of the sheep and goats, Jesus endured the fate of the goats who were cursed, accursed. Depart, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Jesus was made a curse for us. In Galatians 3.13, and departed into a fire. He was consigned to everlasting fire because he was the burnt offering. Jesus was the lamb who endured the fire of judgment and was consumed as the burnt offering ought to be for us all. So with a nudge from Raymond Schwager, who wrote this book in 1999, we have only given a first look at the parables as interpreted in the light of the justice, the love, the universal mercy of God, and God's great faithfulness. Unveiled in the faithfulness of Jesus to the extent of the experience of being cut off, excluded, bound, beaten, and thrown into outer darkness where he was consumed by the fire of judgment for us all. Now, as we place Paul's doctrine of justification next to Jesus' dramatic presentation of the gospel in the synoptic gospels. And as we consider the judgment of the judge in behalf of all of humanity and the consequent resurrection of him from the dead, his supreme exaltation, which means eternal salvation for all of humankind, it just may, just may move us to stand or to kneel in reverential awe of God. This is the order of things. If you read Philippians 2, 6 through 11 and then follow it up immediately by 2, 12 and 13. This is what makes a harmless people in the midst of a crooked and distorted generation among whom you shine as lights, holding forth the word of life to the dead. 2.14 and 15 of Philippians. It just may move us to work out, as Paul put it, our own individual part in this so great salvation and to work it out by a graced participation in the faithfulness of the Son of God as God himself wills and works in us, in his ongoing action of justification, sanctification, 
on the way to inevitable glorification. It may move us to want to be attentive to the implanted word. Because this message is not preached in churches, people go to services they call worship services. And they kind of steer around the word because they've heard it all. They've heard all the parables and they're scared. There's nothing wrong with worship services. But I can't imagine one without the word. It may move us to want to be attentive to the implanted word, which is able to save our souls from guilt, from self-condemnation that isolates and alienates us from others, strangely enough. From censorious judgmentalism in which we condemn others and ourselves. In the condemning of others, we condemn ourselves. It may move us to want to be intelligent with the mind of Christ. To offer our body as a living sacrifice, which is just our reasonable service, our reasonable worship. It may move us to put off the old and decrepit self and put on the new eschatological person, even to put on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And to make no room for the flesh with its destructive, impulsive desires. It may move us to be responsible to live in faithful and wholehearted trust. In the living God, it may move us to be in love by God's gift of God's own love to us, which the Holy Spirit pours out in our heart. You can't tell us. You can't tell us that the doctrine of universal justification by the unconditional grace of God, a product of his unrestricted love, And a fruit of his justifying justice. You can't tell us that that's a motivation to sin. You can't convince us that the justice whereby God transforms evil into the supreme good makes us take God's mercy lightly. Not if we've heard it aright. You can't browbeat us into thinking that God's saving mercy to all through God's own faithfulness expressed in the faithfulness of Jesus unto the death of the cross. You can't tell us that makes us want to forget God and live just like we want to live. It's not that at all. It's the supreme Motivation to rectitude, to God-approved livingness, to an intense desire even, even to an overwhelming sense of indebtedness to all people. To give this gospel to them. To tell them of this transforming, liberating, justifying truth. And as I say this, I know this is being said to DVD groups across the nation, including 
Longview, Texas. Used to be Troop Texas Group, now it's Longview, Texas, who meet now in New Digs, a fancy law office. Longview, Texas. And I thank, I salute you guys from the heart. Debbie Reed is a representative. She writes me a sit rep every once in a while. So they may even pass through here someday. Y'all? They say y'all too. So I just say all. <laughs> Get it? Never mind. All right. Paul had that sense of indebtedness. That's the true missionary motivation and it begins right out your front door why wouldn't we want to have a sense of indebtedness to give this gospel to them tell them of the transforming liberating justifying truth this knowledge of the son of God this grace this truth this reality that is embodied in Jesus Paul's doctrine of justification in Romans is entirely in agreement with the so-called problematic judgment texts in the parables of Jesus in the synoptic gospels. As in the case of Jonah's message of a destructive and catastrophic judgment, something intervened. The catastrophic destructive judgment of the Lamb of God. Something intervened. And repentance is granted to all. So in the case of the parables. Given before the crucifixion of Jesus. Which for the first time made sense of them. I'll say that again. For the first time. Made sense of the parables. And nobody makes sense of the parables, whether they're a Bible thumper or a Bible teacher, until they see it in the light of the crucified Lord Jesus Christ. And still they read it in the light of the glory of the knowledge of God that streams from the face of the crucified one. You don't know diddly squat about the parables. You can read all the books in the world about the parables. You can read the whole New Testament and the Old Testament and the King James Version 10 times a year straight on through, but you don't know squat until you see it in the blazing light of Jesus Christ and him crucified. So, again, I'll, I'll close. That means I'll shut up now. I let my words on earth be few all my life. I really do until I get here. I believe in that. I believe in letting our words on earth be few, whether they're texted, telephoned, spoken, because the Bible tells us if we talk for any amount of time past what's normal or what's feasible, it can't help but include evil. It can't help it.
So before you get to that place where you're ready to talk about that one person, that if you can glory in their faults, that can make you look a little bit better. You'll hear my voice echoing in your little brain saying, shut up. Now, okay. Something intervened. Something was granted to everyone. So in the case of the parables, the judgment of Jesus followed by his justifying resurrection intervened and effectively granted repentance to all of humanity in all of its times. When each individual is awakened to the gospel by the spirit of truth and grace, the result is anything but a motivation to sin or to do evil. In fact, the love of Christ may just begin to control that individual. If one died for all, then all died. Now the love of Christ seems to control me. 2 Corinthians 5.14, amen. Thank you, Father. We thank you that we can look into the perfect law of liberty anywhere and settle, whether on Romans or whether on the parables of Jesus. And all we see is perfect, glorious, unparalleled, unequaled, otherworldly love staring at us through the eyes of a crucified Savior. Crucified and raised. Crucified and elevated, exalted, seated at the right hand of the Father. Father, what assurance we have today. We were there when they crucified our Lord. We were crucified with him. We were there when they laid him in a tomb. We were buried with him. We were there when he raised up from the dead. We were raised together with him. We are there with him seated at the Father's right hand, for he raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Grant us the eyes that see this, Father, even as you granted the man the eyes who only saw all people as trees walking. You granted him the sight to see all people clearly as the objects of your universally saving mercy. Grant us these eyes and grant us to see clearer and clearer with them. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.